To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello, and welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast, hosted by the litigation and policy team at Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research platform of Bloomberg LP. This podcast series examines the intersection of business, policy, and law. I'm Elliot Stein, an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering financials litigation. And my name is Nathan Dean, and I'm an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering financials policy. So our topic for today is one of the subjects that is going to dominate the news headlines throughout the year, Washington, D.C. What can we expect to come out of Congress, from regulators, and the White House in 2024? Will Congress pass any legislation this year that will have an impact on your portfolio? Will regulators increase their rulemaking pace this year to finalize items before the 2024 elections and perhaps to get ahead of uh, a ruling on the Chevron case? Uh, How will the elections shape U.S. policy for years to come? How should investors think about a potential rematch between President Biden and former President Trump? Joining us today to help answer those questions are some of the best individuals distributing policy research and, and analysis to Wall Street. And we could not be more delighted to have them on our podcast. First, we'd like to introduce Henrietta Trays, Director of Economic Policy Research with VEDA Partners. Henrietta has provided investors with economic policy analysis for over 15 years on a broad set of topics, including financial services and healthcare reform. She is also an alum of Congress, having worked for the Senate Finance Committee and as a research fellow for a congressional member. And she's also a frequent contributor to Bloomberg TV and radio. Henrietta, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. And also joining us is another contributor to Bloomberg TV and radio, Isaac Boltansky, Managing Director and Director of Policy Research at BTIG, where he's responsible for coordinating the firm's Washington policy analysis and forecasting how potential policy shifts could impact investors, corporations, and other market participants. Prior to BTIG, Isaac was the Director of Policy Research at Compass Point Research and Trading, and also served as a research analyst on the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, as uh, many of you I'm sure know it, uh, the TARP Congressional Oversight Panel. So Isaac, welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast. Thanks for the invite. Happy to be here with, with both of you. I appreciate your research and always good to be with Henrietta. Thank you both. So for our regular listeners, we're going to do things a little bit differently for this episode because we have this great panel of Washington experts. So we're going to sort of do this as a round robin of sorts, uh, asking you know some of the key questions that we've uh, that are on, on our minds, on clients' minds, on investors' minds. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Let's talk about predictions for 2024. 
Uh, Henrietta, why don't we start with you, and then Isaac and Nathan, you guys can jump in after. I'd like to, you know, start with, you know, sort of a, a broad question. What is the one thing in 2024, a key prediction that you think the market is out of consensus on? Is there something that markets aren't paying attention to, whether it's legislative, regulatory, or from the executive branch? Oh, man, where to start? Um, I, I would say that the most frequent conversation I have with investors is really around Fed interest rate cuts. When's that going to start? When's it going to end? Um, there is a prevailing view in any meeting I go to that the Fed is going to hold off reducing interest rates as we get closer to the election. And uh, I disagree with that. That's not my experience, having worked closely with those agencies during the Great Recession. You know, whatever the Fed needs to do, whenever they're going to need to do it, they will act. Uh, I think that will be independent of a lot of sort of political, um, maybe conspiracy theories I sometimes think about them as. Uh, but expectations is for starting cuts in March and going through maybe uh, August, September. Um, I think if they need to go well into September, they will do so. So that's one big one. Um, the next big disconnect is really just uh, a commitment to the idea that there will be another candidate on the 2024 presidential election ballot that is not named Biden or Trump. We get that a lot. Every single room I walk into, we have that conversation for a long time, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, just spitballing ideas about who else could it be? What happens if one of them drops out? Um, if this were any other two people um, in any other year, I don't think anybody would question the lock that Donald Trump has on the Republican Party. And Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee. He is the preferred candidate of 83 percent of Democrats now. And I expect that will rise. Um, so I don't see a path forward for other candidates. By the time y'all publish this podcast, maybe we'll have more information out of New Hampshire. Um, but after New Hampshire, I think the primary season is done. And then investors will really start potentially being able to bake in what their expectations are for the election. There is probably the most um, to do on the tax front and then also on the trade front. So those are two areas that I focus on heavily with clients. And we'll talk about um, some of those issues some more in terms of uh, congressional and presidential uh, priorities. Um, but sticking on 2024 key predictions, Isaac, anything you want to, uh, anything you're keeping an eye on? Yeah, look, I think Henrietta's right. The, the number of conversations I have where people are just high on hopium regarding some other candidate riding in to save the 2024 election. Nobody wants it to be Biden v. Trump, uh, but it's going to be Biden v. Trump. And I think that, that there is definitely in the investor community um, some hope that there'll be another um, set up. I just don't see it. So I think really getting our arms around understanding what's going to be an ugly and emotionally exhausting election cycle, um, because that is what it's setting up as. I would also say that um, I, I don't think that market's fully ready yet for the absolute flurry of rulemaking that we're going to get from the agencies um, in advance of um, the Congressional Review Act deadline, advance of the Chevron ruling, advance of the election. And so, um, you know, you can you can pick any part of the alphabet soup that runs town and they're trying to get these uh, these papers out and done as soon as they can. Because, look, we get into May of this year and and if you are uh, releasing something after that, you, you may be in trouble in terms of the Congressional Review Act, which allows for an expedited means of reversing a rule. 
Um, and so I think that's the one area that I've been highlighting in terms of something that might not be that sexy, but could have an enormous impact for certain uh, sectors. With rule finalization, I was just going to say, often comes litigation, so which is uh, what I cover. So I'm looking forward to, to that. All right, Nathan, what, what did you want to chime in with? So I was going to just echo Isaac's comment about the rulemaking. I mean, even if you just look at the SEC calendar, they're starting with a rule on SPACs on January 24th, and I think they're just going to go straight through. It's almost going to be like primary season for the SEC. They've got so much stuff on the docket. Uh, but my one prediction that I'm going to go out there is I'm going to say that the Basel III endgame is finalized. Um, I don't think, I think there is a growing consensus in Wall Street and amongst the banks that this may not happen. And I certainly don't, I certainly think there is a decent chance that it may not happen. But if you look at the regulatory agendas that the regulators, the Fed, the OCC, and the FDIC have put out, they've said that their goal for finalizing the Basel III endgame is June. Now that is so fast in terms of going from proposal to finalization and so forth like that. But like Isaac has pointed out, you know, you've got a Congressional Review Act out there, you've got this potential for a GOP victory out there, you've got a lot of things that are just uncertain for the regulatory framework going forward. So I think you're going to have to make massive changes, and we can talk about this later, but as of right now, we're still saying 60% chance that the, the Basel III endgame gets out this year. Well, let's stick, let's stick on that for a moment. Um, Isaac or Henrietta, do you do either of you think they don't get it done by their anticipated timeline of, Nathan, what did you say, May or June? Yeah, I, you know, I, I could see it slip, but I still, you know, they're they're aiming for June, and, and as, as everybody knows, those those dates aren't set in stone, but uh, uh, I, I think they're going to, right now they're proceeding as if they're going to finalize it this year. And the comments have been voluminous, as I'm sure you guys all saw. So uh, Isaac or Henrietta, any thoughts on, on the timing? I'm I'm happy to jump in on this one because I've I've spent the past day and a half of of my life reading comment letters and God knows I'm not going to get that time back. But um, you know my my view is I don't think they're going to have it finalized um, this year. I think that the odds of a reproposal have have increased meaningfully over the past few weeks. I think that the letters that you've seen from the Hill, as well as everything I've been able to pick up in regards to some consternation within the agencies and the principles in the agencies. And then you throw on top of it some of these comment letters where you have a pretty diverse set of, of folks expressing concern regarding this proposal and its economic impact. So look, I, I'm taking the over on that. I'm not as fearful of the Congressional Review Act. One of the peculiarities of the, the Congressional Review Act um, is that if you do use it, which, by the way, they don't really like using it for financial services issues when, you know, they're going to have control of these agencies shortly after so they can just change the issues at hand. Um, but then also it effectively salts the earth for new rulemaking, um, anything that's substantively similar, which Elliot hasn't been fully litigated yet. So there's still questions around that, of course. But look, I'm taking the over. I think that they're going to do a, um, an impact study that's going to take time. I think they're going to work to find a way to try to handle some of the low-hanging fruit, everything from mortgage to the treatment of corporate loans. But they're massive fights over the use of internal models and other things that lead me to believe this is going to slip into the end of 24 and maybe even 25 if they decide to repropose. All right, so we have Nathan with the under, Isaac with the over. Henrietta, you want to be peacemaker or side with uh, one of these gentlemen? Uh, I very much agree with Isaac on the level of consternation that's coming out, um, and I don't think Nathan is discounting that at all either. Um, what's interesting from my perspective is the 
um, um, that the the reach that the complaints have been able to secure. So, you know, whether it's at a healthcare conference or, you know, Jamie Dimon is out speaking somewhere, the trickle down effect of somebody at the top having a negative reaction to these rules and proposals is so widespread that it's covered the blanketed the whole street at this point. So I'd expect exactly the dynamic Isaac is talking about just to get louder. Um, I did not spend the last day and a half reading those complaint letters. Um, so thank you for doing it, Isaac. You're, you're waiting for the movie. <laughs> yes. Um, all right, let's uh, let's switch gears a little and talk about Congress. So we're, we're recording this on January 18th and at this time, uh, Speaker Johnson and congressional negotiators are still trying to find a deal to keep the government open. Um, and so because of that, we're not going to talk about, you know, a potential government shutdown um, since that issue could be resolved by the time this episode airs. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but I do want to focus a little bit on congressional priorities for 2024 from Speaker Mike Johnson. Once we get past this government funding issue, can Speaker Johnson effectively run the House? What are his priorities for the coming year? Can he handle, you know, the many internal dis disagreements um, that he has with, with his party, um, similar to what we saw recently when 12 Republicans helped bring down an otherwise ordinary rules vote? Do you even think he'll be speaker at the end of 2024? So a lot of questions that I wanted to sort of throw out there. Um, Isaac, why don't we start with you this time? So the initial question is, uh, does Speaker Johnson, uh, is he able to effectively manage the House? The answer is no. What's the next question? Um, you know, I, I think it's been pretty clear that this is an ungovernable House. And when I and, and I would even take it a step farther and to say, you know, look, we're in earnings season now. And earnings season is all about expectations management. And boy, oh boy, was the bar set low for the 118th Congress. And somehow they can't even clear that low bar. And that's what you have when you have margins this this tight on each side. And so, look, I, I think that we are we are gearing up to to get a Christmas tree done. And I, I'm very interested in what Henrietta and Nathan think on this. But I do think that there's a path forward on one of these catch-all bills that everyone gets to hang their ornament on. Um, but no, I don't expect much more. And and really, I think it's it's almost an impossible task with the margins where they are in the way that our, our political discourse is, has unfolded over the past few years. So, um, no, I, I, I don't think that we should expect much more than the absolute bare minimum. And let's just hope they can even do that. Always good to go with the under with uh, on what Congress is going to get done. Um, Nathan, thoughts on this? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I do think Speaker Johnson's going to be Speaker at the end of the House. Um, I think he's somewhat called a little bit of a bluff during the most recent government funding deal when he refused to back off his $1.66 or $1.59 trillion government spending bill, depending on who you talk to. They think they somewhat disagree on the top-line number here. But um, I, I echo Isaac's comments that I think once they figure out this spending package, and they avoid this automatic sequester that's coming on April 30th. You know, if we're still under a, a, a CR, there's a 1% sequester coming. Once they figure that out, and I think they will, I think folks are just going to say, we're tired. We're going to go to the election, you know, spend the entire summer. Because, you know, I often tell it to clients that when Congress is stuck here in Washington doing this stuff, like let's just say that somebody tries to uh, kick Speaker Johnson out and they're going to have like 
10 days of trying to figure out who the next speaker is, that's 10 days that your opponent is out in your district campaigning against you if you're in the House. And so I, I certainly think that most of the folks over in Congress will say, look, let us just get our end of the year priority set up in May or June. Uh, let's just call it what it is. Let's go for the election. And obviously there are things like Ukraine and Israel and border security. And I'm going to defer to my other two guests on those because they are better versed in that than I am. Um, you know, all that stuff has to get resolved. But there will come a point where, like, look, I'm just thinking about November and I don't care about anything else. Henrietta, thoughts on this? Yeah, um, I, my favorite thing, I don't know if my clients like it or not, but I always go by the congressional calendar. I find it to be deeply informative and helpful in predicting when they will come up with conclusions. So right now, as we speak, the House and Senate have reached a deal on voting on the CR so they can get out tomorrow before the storm. But if you look ahead, it sounds like we've got a, got a good deal of time between March 1st and March 8th, but they're in session almost none of February. So we, by functionality, have to have another CR. And this is going to be um, a tightrope walk for Speaker Johnson. I suspect he will succeed. Um, the guys have kind of alluded to a dynamic that I think is really informative here, which is that members remember the three-week period where they were trying to reelect a new speaker, and that was awful. Um, they've gone through their whole roster. Um, so at this point, Speaker Johnson is not really somebody that they're unwilling to bash. Obviously, that's happening, but there's no other candidate. So he's going to do exactly what Kevin McCarthy did, which is just move the needle, uh, move the ball down the field every couple of weeks by, you know, four or six weeks at a time. And I think for investors, the sequester is of interest, mostly on the defense side. Um, we have a lot of defense clients who want to know when spending cuts are going into effect. With 90% odds, I think the sequester will never go into effect. Uh, I was in Congress when they were writing the Budget Control Act, and uh, if you remember that $1 trillion sequester, the most notable thing about it was that it never happened. So I suspect that will happen this time around as well. But if you really wanted to look and see when a major spending bill, the Christmas tree kind of idea that Isaac is referencing, I don't think it's coming in February because they're not in session but the period between March 5th and April 18th is when we'll see the next big spending bill written and probably the last bill that they pass all year. Um, aside from regulatory stuff, we're not going to see anything out of D.C. There is no tax bill that's going to pass. There is no additional stimulus coming down the pike. We are just going to fund the government at the most basic of levels. I do think that we will get an international aid package in, in no small part because we also need $55 billion in domestic aid for things like backfilling FEMA, um, things like wildland firefighters, um, some broadband components that a lot of investors are interested in seeing renewed. Um, so I do think that there is enough money to throw around to get these guys to vote on a bill before they leave town and go campaign. And of course, that's the way politics usually works. Pork barrel spending gets the job done. What about crypto um, and something getting done in Congress on crypto. I know, you know, it's been talked about a long time. Um, you know, uh, there have been cryptocurrency frameworks proposed. Um, some have been bipartisan. Um, you know, I think there is talk about maybe a stable coin bill getting done first, potentially. Wondering if you guys had any thoughts on this. Nathan, you want to go first? Yeah, so I, what I tell my crypto clients is that uh, they need to start paying attention to 2025. I mean, like, or more better better framed, uh, the courts, uh, you know, like the Coinbase SEC court that I know Elliot was visiting yesterday and, and we'll have his analysis out on the terminal for that. 
Um, but I don't think Congress is going to be doing anything. Um, now, when it comes to stable coins, I even have said as soon as late December that I thought a stable coin bill could get done. And the reason being is, is that there is a regulatory gap that I think pretty much anybody can agree on when it comes to stable coins. You know, other than Senate, uh, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler viewing them sort of, sort of like a uh, money market account, you know, they're who regulates a stablecoin, nobody really knows. And so I think there is general agreement on that they can get there on a stablecoin, having it 100% backed by high-quality liquid assets and have it registered with the Fed and or another regulator. The question is, can something get done in a Congress like we just alluded to is so toxic? And so at the end of the year, I'd even put in one of my predictions, I thought there was a 60% chance Every day that we goes, I just feel less and less certain on that. And so if there's any crypto investors out there listening to the podcast right now, I think it's more importantly to watch the courts and see what happens in 2025. But just remember, even as of yesterday, President Trump gave a statement that there is no way in his words of uh, uh, no way, no chance of ever having a central bank digital currency um, so, you know, what you get in 2025 may not be what you want to see either. And I, I was in, in court yesterday for the, uh, SEC versus Coinbase, uh, hearing and my, my note, Nathan is already published on the terminal this morning. I like Coinbase's chances in that case, which raises a question, which we can throw into the mix for you all. Let's say the SEC loses and loses badly and that their theory of regulating crypto, you know, under the securities laws gets, uh, rejected by the courts, does that motivate Democrats in Congress to play ball a little more with Republicans in terms of legislation? So I'll, I'll add that into the mix. Henrietta, do you want to go next talking about uh, this issue? Yeah, I'd back up to the 30,000 foot view on that one. I think Democrats and Republicans both have a substantial interest in engaging on the topic because that legislation is going to be a lobbying bonanza. It's a great opportunity for fundraising. I think any member would like to be uh, one of the co-sponsors of legislation on this. It's just a matter of getting the details correct. And one thing about DC that is universal is that they are very lumbering when it comes to learning about a new product. I mean, they still haven't adequately regulated the internet, <laughs> let alone internet sales. So to do crypto as quickly as we're asking, I think is um, to sort of miss that Congress loves to take its time. These things um, are Great opportunities for members to get their name out there, make press comments, differentiate themselves on the campaign trail. Um, so I do expect that there will be legislation, but I wouldn't expect it anytime soon. Certainly not this year. Got it. Isaac, you want to chime in? Yeah, look, it's all so silly. We spend so much time talking about these crypto bills. And the stablecoin bill was actually a good bill. They still haven't really figured out what to do with state regulatory authority, and that's a huge, huge issue. And until they get that handled, I just don't see that moving, but that's a good bill. All of the other bills are just nibbling around the edges. It's absurd to me how much time we spent talking about some of these leading bills that don't actually define what a security is, right? We're still dodging the huge central question of all of this. And so, look, I don't see Congress doing anything on this. I think that We've got to keep in mind, a lot of Democratic lawmakers feel really burned by the crypto world. A lot of these lawmakers, staffers spent the past year scrubbing the social media profiles of their bosses to make sure there weren't any pictures of them with Sam Bankman freed left up, right? So there, there's definitely some buyer's remorse on the Democratic side, and they think that they've got their regulators in and the regulators will handle it. So Congress, I just don't see them actually moving on this. And I think it's all going to be in Elliott's world. 
we got to keep in mind the biggest news of the past few weeks in, in digital assets were these ETFs being approved. Why did they get approved? Because of the grayscale court decision, right? It's the courts who are going to force this. And that takes time, but that's why you got to read what Elliot writes. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, uh, endorsement. I appreciate that. Um, all right, let's move on down to the White House, down Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, where, you know, as we've talked about, President Biden is likely running for re-election against uh, former President Trump. And um, so let's talk about some of uh, President Biden's goals between now and the election. What do you think his key goal is going to be before, between now and the election, if he, if he has one? Are there any policy catalysts that you anticipate he'll focus on before November? Uh, let's see who goes first here. Henrietta, why don't you go first? Sure. I think there's two things for the president to do. Um, bring abortion back to the fold. Make sure that that's a front top of mind issue for voters. It was able to sway every single election, even in a 9% inflation environment that we've had since the Dobbs decision. So it is clearly an effective and permanent source of galvanization that Democrats must seize on. The good news for Biden is he's not going to have to try very hard. The Supreme Court is going to rule on a, a very important case that will determine um, the process by which 50% of abortions in America are conducted this summer. So it's a natural development that the administration can take advantage of. And I think it'll be very difficult for the Republican Party to distance itself from the fact that Roe v. Wade was overturned because of Trump's Supreme Court nominee endorsements and picks. Um, beyond abortion, which in my opinion and, and experience shows is sufficient to win Democrats an election despite hardships on the economy side, um, you do want to see the administration get a serious reality check about their messaging on the state of the U.S. economy. 30% of Americans believe that we are in an economic recovery. The remaining 70% believe we're in stagnation, depression, or recession. That is a disconnect that has, I think, no room to go lower because it's preposterously out of balance and a lot of room to go higher. So the Biden administration has a ripe opportunity to build the big mo, which in politics is all important, especially coming out of Super Tuesday, uh, March 5th, and then they'll have the State of the Union on March 7th. It's a good opportunity for the Biden administration to really pivot to exclusively talking about a 3.7% unemployment rate, the best inflation on the globe, um, strong GDP growth and a no, no recession soft landing, which we can debate how long that will be sustained for. But if that that has occurred. Isaac, you want to jump in here? Yeah, I make a point to never disagree with Henrietta when she's absolutely right. I mean, that's that's the that's the that's one of the core political focuses. I'll just add a little bit more from my seat that I I, I think we should be prepared for. Um, when we talk about the economy, the White House has really gone all in on this junk fee push. We saw yesterday they, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau released a rule regarding uh, bank and credit union overdraft fees. I think that we're going to see the CFPB finalize its credit card late fee rule right around the State of the Union that Henrietta mentioned, and that's going to get some prime time. So that'll continue on, on the economic front. They think that they've got a winner on that end. And also, look, you know, the, the other issue that's come up over the past few weeks is I do think that they're going to... Um, uh, alter the treatment of cannabis under the Controlled Substances Act and move it from um, Schedule 1 to Schedule 3. I know that's probably flying under the radar for some folks, but that's another part of, I think, their election year to-do list. And they've they've set that up for movement, I think, in the next couple months. 
And Nathan, anything you want to uh, chime in with? The only other thing I would add is that uh, I would expect more talk about infrastructure and the Inflation Reduction Act because, you know, we had news reports at the end of the year, uh, and this was never uh, verified, but news reports that President Biden was quite upset that he wasn't as getting as much play for those infrastructure-related projects, which, you know, come in, in this case, in the variety of tax credits and tax incentives and so forth like that. And... You know, I, I think that, you know, a lot of investors, especially non-U.S. investors, want to know what the future of the Inflation Reduction Act is if somebody like President Trump were to come into office. And so I, I think you're going to see maybe not so much. Look, I, I don't think going out to, you know, Nevada and saying we got the Inflation Reduction Act, I don't think that's going to sway as much votes as like abortion or something else would. But I, I do think that maybe in the business community, you may see a, a push from the White House to try and highlight some more examples of these tax incentives and solar energy, clean energy, and so forth like that. So that's one of the things that we're interested in the election uh, more so of is the where do all these carrots that are in the IRA fall, you know, in 2025. If I could just say briefly on that, Nathan, I think that's such an excellent point. There's so much economic activity that has been sort of locked up and delayed because it took so long to get the tax rules written for those credits. And one of the most frequent things I hear when I speak with Republicans is um, really reminiscent of the Affordable Care Act and that Republicans and Trump have seized on the IRA as just being vehemently opposed as sort of like a knee-jerk reaction. And that's all fine and well, you know, nobody likes $80 billion in IRS money. That's fine. But it's the, it's the tax credits that are so economically effective that haven't even gone out yet that are going to unlock billions of dollars in private equity across the entire South, which is where a lot of those jobs are going to be created. And so it's a great opportunity for the Biden administration to put Republicans who are happy to run in the anti-IRA um, basket, but their districts and their states benefit greatly from the job creation and the economic activity that will be spurred by those tax credits. So it's a great way to put Republican lawmakers between a rock and a hard place. Um, I would say focus on Georgia. The president needs all the help he can get there if he wants a repeat of 2020. Um, this would be a good opportunity. I was going to say, if anybody from the White House is listening, I think at the greater Atlanta area is probably one of those areas that you want to uh, put the IRA uh, adverts up for. Couldn't agree more. Speaking of Fulton County, let's talk about President Trump's legal issues um, and how those might play into an election. Does it, you know? Does anyone here think that um, you know the many? Uh, indictments and civil cases that he's facing will prevent him in any way from from obtaining the nomination or winning the presidency. Um, I, I just saw um, the chart the other the other day showing that you know his polling was declining, and DeSantis's and uh, DeSantis's at least was rising up until the first indictment of Trump, I believe, last March or so. And then, you know, Trump's numbers started going up. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, Isaac, let's start with you. I feel like a lot of it is is honestly a distraction from what investors care about, which is who is going to be the nominee. Trump is going to be the nominee. Um, I think that the indictments that we've seen uh, have helped him. You can make that argument in the polling. But more so, I just focus on the fact that a third of the GOP uh, primary voters are going to vote for him no matter what, no matter who is on the ballot, no matter what issues are driving the news that day. And and when we have the shift that we have to more winner take all, 
primaries, it's just so clear that he's going to be the nominee. And so I, I, we have to track the cases. They're meaningful from a headline perspective for investors. But substantively, I just don't think it matters because he is cruising to the nomination. Yeah, I, I got this question recently because the polling does suggest that, that Trump is benefiting from these indictments. He's obviously doing public relations campaignings by showing up at his civil trials as well. Um, the question that I encourage people to focus on, and I think the big defining feature of the current polling data, which suggests that Biden and Trump are neck and neck, is that you still have, A, this optimism that somebody else is going to come into the race and so move the needle. That, I couldn't agree with Isaac anymore. It, it is so plainly obvious that Trump and Biden are the nominees. Anything that would change that is not going to come from the voter base. It's going to come from the conventions. Should we get to July and August and need some sort of upsetting moment because of the trials, uh, because of any other anomaly that might happen? But that's sort of an act of God event that I inherently can't place odds on. Um, but that's really what people are waiting for. And you have to ask, who is the trial helping with? Yes, he's fundraising, but it's not like Democrats are giving him money. This is helping him with his base. He's turning out those small dollar donations from the very voters who've been with him since 2016 and would never leave him. So that is exactly the issue that a lot of the Republican establishment is trying to relay to everybody else that'll listen here, which is you get the third of Republican voters who are always going to back Trump, but you lose everybody else, as they have in every single election since 2016. In a 9% inflation environment, it couldn't be any better for Republicans right now and they cannot get past the fact that Trump is toxic to the majority of the rest of the population and has been consistently. Uh, and that's why our, our odds here are 60% that Biden wins with the Republican Senate, 20% odds that Biden wins with the 50-50 split in Democratic control of the Senate, and only 20% odds that Trump wins, in which case you're basically portending a red wave where Democrats stay home, do not come out to vote, and Republicans show up in huge numbers. And then you get a Republican White House, a Republican Senate, and probably a Republican House able to overcome the redistricting and things that have gone on the last couple of years. And the CRA comes into play in that scenario. Um, Isaac, were you about to say something? Yeah, look, I, I think I'd also just throw in here and, and you know, uh, shout out to the Fed chairman here. I'm going to use the word humility on this. Um, we should have humility about this. Four months ago, no one was talking about war um, uh, with Israel and Gaza. No one was talking about Houthi rebels and, you know, the world can change and the world will change. So goodness only knows what we're going to talk about a few months from now. And we've got to keep in mind the last election between these two was decided by three states and only about 44,000 voters in those three states. And so I, I do think that we we need to, to be cognizant of that slim majority and that reality and also that no one knows what the issues of the day are going to be in, in six months. And so I think it's going to be a close election. I think that um, I think that it's going to be a long election, and I think that we also need to throw into our calculus how uh, the entry, the possible entrance of a third party candidate, will damper enthusiasm, which Henrietta mentioned before, for certain voter blocks in certain states, and it will be a turnout dynamic on that end, uh, driving the the decisioning in November. You mentioned some of the, uh, you know, unforeseen geopolitical issues around the world. Um, so let's um, let's just stay on that for a moment and talk about China and Russia. Um, Henrietta and Isaac, um, you know, what what are some of the key concerns 
you think markets should have about foreign policy towards those countries in 2024. We've often heard, you know, that geopolitical risk is high this year, but do you think there's, are there any key catalysts that you see coming, even though I know a lot of this is unpredictable? Well, some of the predictable ones are coming from the trade world. Ambassador Tai, the U.S. trade representative, is gearing up to complete her four-year review of the Section 301 tariffs, which are, of course, $360 billion worth of goods coming in from China that have been tariffed since the Trump age. Um, she is going to complete that review sometime in the next few months. And I suspect there are some tariffs that could come off, specifically on List 4A, which are very consumer-focused. Um, but they're going to be replaced with equal and opposite tariffs on electric vehicles by every indication that she's giving us. And so when you think about geopolitical tensions, imagine how that um, is responded to by the EU, by Japan, by Taiwan, and then how China decides that it needs to retaliate. Um, so I do think that that's a flashpoint that will come. And it behooves both Trump and Biden and any other person up for re-election this year to bash China. 83% of Americans are very happy to bash China right now and, can, and see it as our biggest sort of existential threat facing the United States. So I suspect that will ramp up as Investor Tai prepares to um, update the Section 301 tariffs. Isaac, anything uh, you want to say on this topic? No, I think that's fair. I, I, I would just add, I'm starting to get more and more questions about Trump's tariff policy, which obviously we, we can pull the thread on his 10%. Um, tariff uh, commentary, but I think once again we're, we're going to um, we're going to have to see how much of this he means, how much of this is positioning. Um, but that's something that I think some investors are starting to focus on now that uh, they're coming to terms with the fact that Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. You know, I was just going to say the only thing I would add is um, the power of the presidency for those you know non-government policy folks that are listening right now power of the presidency is so much more powerful uh, when it comes to foreign policy, trade, and so forth like that, because you can avoid a lot of Congress. So I think even if you get into a situation where President Trump wins and there's like a gridlock, you know, House and Senate and so forth like that, uh, it's just a lot of the headline risk we see comes in this foreign policy space uh, without giving any predictions. It's just good to keep in your hip pocket is uh, that's usually a lot of the challenges in that space comes from the presidency and the headlines. Yeah, I, I layer on here. Uh, I mentioned at the outset that investors haven't really priced in the election yet, in part because they're hoping that there's another candidate. But when they do, the universal baseline tariff, which really rolls off the tongue for um, the former president, for his campaign team, for Bob Lighthizer, who's obviously out workshopping the idea, it seems to be one of the easiest pillars for them to discuss after drill, drill, drill. And I think investors really pay attention to that. And unlike in 2017 and 2018, when we were running up um, to the release of that investigation over IP theft and the implementation of those tariffs in the first place, investors take this very seriously now. So they don't really know what a UBT is. Um, that's because it's, you know, something akin to the borderline, uh, sorry, uh, the border adjustment tax that people will remember from uh, Paul Ryan's initial tax reform proposal, but it is the number one pay for in Trump's tax bill. And if if I could have my way, I would have investors focus on tax policy every day. But the individual tax cuts that expire at the end of 2025 are going to cost $2.3 trillion just to keep them even. You're going to need some sort of revenue raiser or you'll be blowing out the deficit by $2, 3000000000000 trillion. Now, 
they don't really have problems blowing out the deficit when it's one party control in Congress. So I don't have a concern with that. But the universal baseline tariff is the number one revenue raiser in the Trump platform. And they speak about it with ease. So I think it's appropriate for investors to take it seriously. That's really interesting. Um, all right. I have one final substantive topic uh, that we wanted to just talk about, and it shouldn't take too much time. Um, and that is the SEC and Chairman Gary Gensler. Um, what do you all think he does in 2024? Um, and do you think he sticks around in 2025 if President Biden wins re-election? And if he doesn't, where does he go next? Nathan, why don't we start with you? Yeah, so uh, on the SEC actions front, I mean, one all one needs to do is go to the regulatory agenda, uh, which obviously is this wonky website that you don't left, need to look for. Just call us and we will get you in touch with that website. But if you go to the regulatory agenda, the SEC has like 50 rulemakings on it, and not all of them are going to be finalized in 2024, but there's like probably 20 or so rules that the SEC has to get off their plate from SPACs, which they're going to finalize on January 4th, to equity market structure, to this climate change proposal uh, on whether or not it includes scope three or not. So where I'm going with this is that between January 24th and this May timeframe that uh, Isaac alluded to earlier, I think the SEC is just going to be finalizing rule after rule after rule after rule. And then once this, you know, we get closer to the election, I think the SEC is going to calm down a bit. Now, for whether Chair Chairman Gensler sticks around after the election and President Biden wins, uh, I could see him maybe for a year or so. Um, I have not heard anything about what his next wishes are. Um, I could see him sticking around. But I think for him... It's the equity market structure, I think, is what his most important call it legacy is, um, because I think you know the SEC or the climate change rule could get overturned and so forth. So I think, I think he's going to be more so about this investor protection, customer protection, and so forth. A lot of these transparency initiatives, I think, are what he's really going to want to get out this year. Although I got to think, equity equity market structure rules are uh, also going to get litigated once finalized, you know, no, no matter how much they're, they're tweaked. And so in these cases, you know, if, if uh, are most likely to survive, you know, if Gensler leaves, the, the litigation will still be around after he's gone. I mean, I, I, I'm not a lawyer, but at this point, I'll just go out there and say that the SEC could put out a rule saying the earth is round and somebody will sue in the Fifth Circuit. So, you know, it's just one of those things that I think it's going to happen no matter what. Um. Henrietta, any thoughts on uh, Gensler and, and the SEC? Well, I do think it's an interesting time. You know, the second term of a president in this scenario, obviously the assumption would be that Biden wins. You might want to go, you know, to the mat for the first year or two. And then after that, um, you know, you're on the outside. The party's going to start switching over. We'll have uh, fresh faces at the presidential level. Uh, we already have a fresh, fresh face in the House speakership with Hakeem Jeffries. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity for movement. Fresh, fresh races to get in there. Um, I think there's a lot of work to do elsewhere, and I wouldn't be surprised if after a year or two we would move on. Isaac? You know, let's take a step back. It's pretty remarkable what we've seen over the past few years from the SEC. I mean, their agenda is longer than a Leonard Cohen song, as Nathan pointed out earlier. And it's pretty incredible uh, what we've seen from there. But what I, I'm struck by is how much of it I think is going to be struck down by the courts. Right. I think that the private equity uh, transparency proposal could be struck down. I think the climate change one could be struck down on equity market structure. I am almost certain that if finalized, some of that will be struck down. And not to mention that I find some of it a bit 
preposterous given that our equity market structure actually functions pretty darn well. Every effort to kill payment for order flow over my 15 plus years of watching has died because our current equity market structure that relies on payment for order flow is the worst system, except for all the other options, right? It still gives the best outcome for retail investors. And so to me, when you think about the SEC, I think that many, many of these proposals will be reversed by the courts. Um, and in terms of what um, Chairman Gensler does next, I have absolutely no idea. I've heard that he was leaving 75 different times, almost exclusively from crypto investors. So who, who knows? But I, I do think that we need to be more cognizant, and this is a good shout out again for Elliot, of how many of these financial proposals are going to be challenged in courts. From the CFPB's late fee proposal, which could come out any day and will almost immediately be challenged, to Basel, to darn near everything the SEC is going to finalize this year. And so that, that really underscores the importance of, of the litigation part of this story for investors. Yep, I agree with that. Um, all right, and I, I'll just uh, add that uh, Nathan and I at some point want to have uh, Chairman Gensler and his twin brother on as podcast guests. Uh, but that is, uh, we'll see if that ever happens. All right, so that that's it for the substantive um, uh, discussion. Uh, we always like to end our episodes with some fun stuff or maybe, you know, difficult questions, uh, depending on how you look at it. But this is something that Nathan and I always ask our guests. If you are stuck on a desert island and could only bring three pieces of music, you know, whether it's songs or albums or an artist, uh, what would you bring? Um, Henrietta, let's start with you. All right. Well, I'm, uh, as you know, I'm based here in New Orleans and it is fully Mardi Gras season. So I refuse to move on from that. And to my island, I'm bringing Alan Toussaint, Professor Longhair, Dr. John and Irma Thomas. Can't go wrong with that. Um, what about the radiators? Do you like the radiators? Ever listen to I them? do like the radiators. Yeah, they're good too. Um, the meters, galactic. Yes, yeah, they can yes. all come. Oh, okay, they good, come good. Too. All right, good. It's a party. Uh, all right, Isaac, how about you? I mean, my favorite band of all time is The Band. And so my answer is The Last Waltz. I think that uh, if you have that, you really don't need anything else. By the way, you are the second guest we've had to say that. Dan Horowitz, who we had on several months ago, also included The Last Waltz soundtrack. Uh, as uh, his go-to for a desert island. Um, all right, that's a good one. Uh, Nathan, you've gotten to ask this question many times, but I don't know if I know your answer. You know, 1990s rap, 1990s alternative, <laughs> pretty much anything that was put out between 1992 and uh, 2000, I will take to my grave. All right, all right. This is good stuff. All right, well... With that, I think we'll wrap up this episode of Votes and Verdicts. We are extremely grateful to both Henrietta and Isaac for appearing on this episode. I think this was a really informative discussion about, you know, one of the most important years uh, in Washington that 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 will um, that we'll have this year and that we've had in a long time. So thank you to our listeners for taking the time to join. And as a reminder, you can read all of our Bloomberg Intelligence research on the Bloomberg Terminal at BIGO. Thank you again, and have a great day.
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.